Hello and welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. My guest this time is Fahana Shazadi. She's a director and family law solicitor, collaborative lawyer and mediator at Family Law Partners. She's ranked in Legal 500 and has practiced for over 20 years dealing with divorce and financial and, and children's matters. In 2022, Fahana founded the Family Law Menopause Project with the aim of raising awareness amongst the family law community of the significant impact of menopause on many women so that family lawyers can ensure their client care and advice is attuned and reflective to this important issue, which affects so many women and families. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Emma, and thank you for the introduction. I have been practicing for 20 years, which is a little bit scary. It definitely makes me middling. So I think I'm... <laughs> Your I'm prime, prime market, <laughs> target market. <laughs> well, we're really delighted to have you along because the stark facts that, that came out of, of the research, and we'll, we'll go into it in a bit more detail, but you, you conducted a survey in conjunction with Newson Health Research and Education, and that showed that seven in 10 of the women surveyed blamed the menopause for the breakdown of their marriage. Shocking, isn't it? It's yeah. really shocking. Uh, and, and obviously very sad that a lot of those people would perhaps have kind of come out the other side of that and only realised later on what was going you know that 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 they had been going through the, the menopause and that was a sort of a contributing factor and you also mentioned that actually quite a high percentage as as well were claiming it had increased uh, domestic abuse and, and arguments from your point of view why did you think that you needed to set up the project in in the first place why is that unique i think um as with many people at the moment we hear a lot about menopause which is good it's about time mm-hmm. but over my 20 years practice as a family lawyer there has been no conversation about it and it's probably fair to say i set up the project to raise awareness because it's been very very silent within the family law profession and i think amongst a lot of professionals and many other lawyers as well. And I had a recognition maybe about five or six years ago that there was something in particular going on with some of my female clients, some of my wives, and I couldn't account for it. I could see that some struggled, tearful, upset, stressed. And I think it's absolutely right that many people on the family law journey dealing with lawyers and contentious matters are going to be stressed, men Mm, and women. But there was definitely something different about some of the women I was acting for. But I didn't know what it was. Um, I put it down to the the process. But as I moved on, and as I moved into a different stage of my life as well, as did my peers, siblings, so lots of people around me, I I had a strong feeling it was down to perimenopause or menopause. And that's why the recent conversations which people like Davina McCall and um, uh, Kate Muir, Dr. Newson, have really spearheaded, made me very much more, I think, knowledgeable and mm. could understand what was, what was happening. So I wanted to set about um, testing really the thesis as to whether menopause was contributing to divorce because that was my, my feeling from my casework. So I did an initial survey with um, family lawyers in the first place because I wanted to see what they were doing yeah, in terms of my hearing? case. Yeah, in terms of my casework, there was nothing; it wasn't being taken into account. So I wanted to see what the lawyers were doing. So I ran a mini survey, and the results of that I found very interesting as well. So eighty-one percent of family lawyers 
um, said um, that they recognised that menopause may well be having an impact, but they hadn't understood it and hadn't been taking it into account. Mm -hmm. But when asked the question, I think lawyers are smart enough to know that actually maybe this was something important, but it wasn't factored into their casework. We further asked whether they felt it led to any prejudice for their client as to um, if they hadn't factored it in and whether there was going to be any financial prejudice to their client. And 65% of family lawyers said, yeah, they think their clients were being financially prejudiced. And I think, um, I mean, you might be right to ask me, why, why are people being financially prejudiced? Why are these wives being financially prejudiced within family work if menopause isn't being taken into account? And, and that's simply because with lots of family work and the type of work I do, we're distributing assets. That's a, that's a big part or component of our work to, to understand the assets, compute the assets mm. and then distribute the assets. But with some of these wives in particular, if you haven't factored in menopause, it means you probably haven't factored in the fact that their earning capacity may be um, damaged as a result of uh, menopause, their savings, their pensions. So it's quite a big piece of work. Mm, because we know we know that people are you know sadly dropping out of the workplace as a result and if that's happened to them at the same time as the the divorce might be happening absolutely the impact I think is quite profound and um, and before I move on to the main survey I carried out with um, Dr Louise Newson I I think the impact is really worth just having a look at and between us Emma because the Fawcett report came out which um I'm sure you read with interest yeah. <laughs> and which probably informs many of your podcasts as well in terms of the financial impact upon women. But it's just worth just emphasizing there's 13 million women potentially in perimenopause and menopause of which one in four have debilitating symptoms. So that's mm. a quarter. It's probably fair to say a quarter of women have no symptoms and they're the blessed quarter. <laughs> and um, a further half of women are going to have symptoms more or less which impact in um in a small way or a large way but um 99% of working women do say uh, the symptoms have an impact on them in some way and leading on from those particular headlines Fawcett and the parliamentary women and equalities committee were reporting that one in 10 women have quit their jobs or looking to quit their jobs so yeah. I, and you know that's those are big numbers from my from a family lawyer's point of view as well. And that sixty seven percent of workplaces aren't taking symptoms into account. Forty one percent of women saying that um, menopause was treated as a joke in the workplace. Forty five percent of women going to their um, GPs and being either misdiagnosed or just simply turned away. I have to say, my GP, whilst very sympathetic to symptoms I had, did also turn me away. She asked me what I did for a living. And of course, being a family lawyer is stressful. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think she was wrong in saying to me that maybe I should reflect on my levels of stress. But in fact, I think she did inevitably miss the fact that I was I had perimenopausal symptoms. And um, recently I read um, that there are over 60 symptoms. But if we ask women to comment on how many symptoms they think they have, there may be, what, three, four, with um, hot flushes being right at the top. Going back to the workplace, going back to treatment, actually, only 14% of women being treated 
it's very small I think so that's great HRT yeah and I guess in a certain way if if they have taken time out to to have a family for example then they're potentially getting double penalized because potentially they've they've been out of the workforce they've they've not and they've not been paying into a pension they may be gone back part-time so their earning power is less anyway. And then if they're in a situation where there's a divorce happening and they've had to step back from work as a result of sort of menopause symptoms, then that's another blow to their long term financial health. I think you. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. So. Uh... You know, average, um, when do in average people get married? It's quite late now. It's getting later and later. I think I read it was around 29 or 30 with the first child coming also quite late at a, at a mm. similar age, 30, 31. So you're right. It has a financial impact once you're married and have your first child. So it's a bookend, if you like. And then the other bookend is um, potentially perimenopause. So for women, working lives seem to be much shorter than for men. And I think you're absolutely right. The impact on pension is quite large. And there's some recent reporting that I was reading from Deborah Price at Manchester University talking about how a divorced, non-cohabiting woman's pension wealth was one-fifth of that of a man between the 55 to 64 age group. So that absolutely reflects, I think, the women's working and pension saving life seems to be shorter than men's. And so you get this quite stark inequality, I think, mm. which in family law can be quite pronounced. I think, you know, it's something that we are working with or should be dealing with within family law. But going on to the main survey, Emma, so seven in 10 women reporting that they um, attribute their marital breakdown to menopause. Mm. Did that surprise you that, that that it was that that it was that high? It's huge. Yeah, listen, I definitely anecdotally felt a fair few of marriages were ending because of menopause, but seven out of ten. Mm. Look, I'm bound to say, of course, that um, the women who were reporting that type of statistics were in that 45 to 55 age band. But actually, the truth is, is that divorce, the prevalence of divorce is between 45 to 55. So I had worked out divorces, <laughs> high divorce incident rate in there. Yeah. And also perimenopause is generally between that 45 to 55. But I was still struck by the statistic, struck also that um, 67% of women were saying that um, menopause, they felt increased domestic abuse mm. and arguments in the relationship now that's whether or not the marriage failed or not oh okay right so it wasn't just people who were going through divorce it was it was a broader sample it was it was anyone who wanted to participate participate within the survey but it it, it was inevitably going to be women who had symptoms I think that were going to be completing this but we we didn't have parameters for it and it was 67 percent who reported the increase in domestic abuse 80% of women reporting that it put a strain on their children and family life. Mm. Now, that's regardless of whether it led to a failure in their marriage or not. So these are big stresses within within a marriage and within divorce. And then 97% of um, women saying that their lawyers never addressed it with them. So 97%. Mm. (laughs) So lawyers aren't aren't taking instructions from their client. And I think that's a real shame. It's a shame because if you haven't asked your client, then you can't factor it into the work that you do or into your client's service. 
Mm. So one of the things that I am quite careful about now as a family lawyer is to make sure that I am patient and mindful about the amount of information that my client, my wife in particular, mother in particular, is absorbing and is able to absorb. Because some of the some of the feedback from the survey results included the fact the women were reporting that they found remembering the facts of the case very difficult. They found dealing with hostile correspondence with their spouse, ex-spouse or the spouse's lawyer very difficult. Completing lengthy forms, and in family law, we do have some lengthy mm. forms. Especially if very... they're having issues with brain fog, insomnia, all those kinds Absolutely of things that we right. know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so lengthy forms. I mean, there's a form called Form E, which um, I think is 26 pages long, and it's very turgid. It's, you know, you're really meant to be putting all of your financial information, your pay slips, your bank accounts, your properties. It's, it's, it can be challenging, challenging for the lawyer too, but very mm. challenging for the client. Meeting deadlines, very, very hard for some of mm. our female clients. So I think as a lawyer, if you understand that your client has perimenopause and menopause, you should be, that in your client service should be factored in. Yeah. I also think it should be factored in in relation to when you're making an evaluation about ability to earn and whether a clean break is appropriate in a case, whether this particular wife will build up savings or pension savings, um, because those are essential parts of a, a family lawyer's job. Mm. And if you haven't seen it, it's not visible to you, you haven't spoken to your client about it, I imagine you can't be doing the best job you can. But going back to some of those other statistics, um, massive impact on sex life. And that doesn't come as a surprise. 75% of women saying their sex lives had really diminished, which Mm. speaks to the symptoms, doesn't it? You know, those taboo symptoms within perimenopause, menopause. Mm. But if if people within that relationship aren't talking about that then but but it's you know causing difficulties within the relationship yeah there's potential there's huge potential there I guess on both sides for better kind of awareness better support to to help potentially couples stay together if if they're kind of aware of what's going on but I guess you say sort of that lack of awareness means that neither party necessarily is is working to address the the things that are kind of gone gone unspoken Oh, for sure. And the lack of awareness comes throughout the chain. So very often the um, the wife, the female client, doesn't know she has menopause. And if she suspects it and goes to a GP who sends her away and thinks it's dress mm. and not menopause, well, then she's not able to communicate it to a lawyer and she's not able to dis- discuss it with her partner prior to the marital breakdown. I was actually looking, I don't know if you've ever seen, Emma, the um, Holmes and Rahe stress scale. No. which is a scale of all the stresses you have in life. And I was, I was quite interested in this. And divorce is number two within that stress scale. And that's actually why I think lots of lawyers miss this. Because if you are presented with a client who seems to exhibit symptoms and stress and upset, then you may well think it's divorce. But I think, mm. um, I think divorce actually often camouflages menopause. I think there's a relationship between those two things. And we might see one, but then don't see the other. So I imagine a lot of GPs may be thinking, oh, that's a difficult divorce. That isn't menopause. And then family lawyers are thinking, oh, well, that's, you know, that's also a divorce. That's not menopause. So I think we're going around in some type of circle. Interestingly, menopause does not appear in the Holmes and Rahe stress test. Well, I think it's probably developed a number of years ago. Illness and injury (laughs) does. 
Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, marriage does. <laughs> it's seventh on the um, scale. Divorce is second. Um, death obviously features quite high at number one. Mm. But um, and, and what sort of response have you had uh, from from the profession, from from kind of colleagues in other firms to your to your research? Have they been kind of interested to to find out more? Yes, absolutely. I, it's it's marmite. I think menopause can be marmite. I I recently presented at a quorum chambers, an excellent set of barristers, and I had a captive audience because people were selecting to come to hear me talk about the issue. And you know, so I could see there's real interest. Probably as I looked across the room, I recognised the interest was primarily from women, and I imagine women of a certain age and stage in their life. So I think there's definitely. Um, you know, a large portion of family lawyers really wanting to know more, hear more, and to see whether they can absorb it into their work to provide better client service. But there's also many, many practitioners who I think are struggling to acknowledge this as being an important part of their work, or struggling to acknowledge that they should factor it in. And I've got some, I've got some critics. I think that's probably fair to say, Emma. I have some there are definitely some strong-minded female lawyers who think this is an excuse it's an excuse for women perhaps not to work or an excuse for them not to do well an excuse for them not to be financially independent i think there are some feminists or type of feminists um, who might be saying well if you flag these problems then it makes women look fragile and vulnerable and it makes it more difficult for them to keep jobs or to obtain promotions or to do well. And I do, and partly I have sympathy for the argument. Hmm. Because if you're flagging, and I think, Emma, you must have come across this in, in a lot of your work and thinking around, around this, that um, w- women, as we know, have already had problems in the workplace due to childbirth. And we've had to have employment laws to protect women going through maternity. I think we are going to have to have laws to protect women going through menopause. There are some employment law cases, but you may know that menopause isn't a protected characteristic under the yeah, Equality not Act. Not at the moment, anyway. <laughs> not at the moment. And it, you know, it'll take a little while before we do that. So employment law, which I think is ahead of family law, is working hard and peddling hard to protect this as a characteristic. And I think for family lawyers, it is going to take some extra time for us to really factor this in. But despite the critics, I think it's so important that we flag this. And I'm so pleased that these conversations are happening in so many different arenas as well. So, of course, you know, Dr. Newson and those wonderful, wonderful medical practitioners are doing so much. But I think everyone can play their part to stimulate conversation, debate, and and that will lead inevitably, I think, to more and more recognition and, the, and therefore treatment um, and ways of supporting women who are going through this. Yeah, but certainly just having that kind of greater level of awareness and understanding, and especially, I think, for for people who perhaps they don't think of themselves having arrived at if you like the typical age of life in which they would be having menopause but you know obviously we we now know that the symptoms can sort of start arriving in early 40s or even before that for for quite a lot of people so hopefully just that increased awareness of the fact that it could be related to that if they're struggling you know emotionally physically Mm. psychologically in a relationship as you say and having 
and and also having that sort of greater level of awareness with from their partners and, and a bit more understanding but if somebody then if they were to be kind of in the situation where they were going through a, a divorce and sort of wanted to flag this as something I guess for their own solicitor to be aware of do you have any sort of suggestions for them about how how best to put that on the table my firm at family law partners we've developed um we have a onboarding tool which clients can spend some time completing and we straightforwardly do flag the issue of menopause perimenopause you know we were struck by the fact that 97 that that clients were saying that 97 percent of lawyers hadn't asked so we wanted to make an invitation to ask Mm. and actually lawyers are very good at dealing with complex and difficult issues and we do triage very well so it's it's i think it's preferable that we ask the question at the outset in order to stimulate the conversation about it because there's nothing to be embarrassed about it could be an important aspect of their case, but more importantly, it could be an important aspect of how we're going to work with that particular client because they may need a little bit more time to assimilate information. And actually, we don't have to. I think there is a feeling that we as lawyers litigate our cases and they can be very contentious and difficult, but we need not. And I, as a lawyer, and, and many of my peers, do consider dispute resolution and mediation as a contrast to being in court. Sure. And in fact, um, one of the survey results I think that was that was important was that um, 60% of women did come back and say they think they would prefer dispute resolution, mediation over a court process. And that's completely understandable because with a court process, that's quite adversarial Mm, it's another stressor um, it's a it's a big stressor and actually probably a lot of the work I do I would say good 70% of the work I do is based on finding constructive solutions whether that's through negotiating with my opposite number lawyer for the other spouse or whether I'm, I'm a mediator and collaborative lawyer as well whether that's mediation or collaboration 70% of the time I'll find a constructive solution and can find a constructive solution And I think if I knew from the outset that that was very important to my client, then I would really be able to put that together and try hard to try and Mm. take that forward. Also, I could signpost. I could be saying to my client, it's really important you speak to a GP. Or I would have medical experts in my black book to say, maybe you could speak to this menopause expert. You know, I think it's really important that we signpost to the right experts and flag to the other side that this may be an issue but actually really important Emma I think is that if I realize that my client has an issue to do with menopause and her earning capacity is going to be impacted it's really important for me to understand that my client won't be able to have a clean break right away and we do have a clean break culture within family law and what that Mm. means is that they are financially independent or cut off from maintenance And that's not going to be in prospect if the the wife needs continuing maintenance or support from their ex-spouse. So whilst the clean break is the ideal solution so that this wife is financially free and the husband is financially free, I think think people may remain financially um, dependent for longer if they have a menopause issue. And Mm. that's one of the things I have an eye to. So 
Often you have women who get no maintenance or maintenance for a very limited period of time. And you may have often heard that two or three years is considered good enough or but actually, there are some wives, as we've seen from the Fawcett reporting, if one in 10 have left work and a quarter of them are suffering quite serious symptoms, they're going to be financially dependent for longer. And I, my, my view is that the maintenance may be paid for five years, six years, seven years, 10 years, or whatever is required to help that particular wife reach financial independence. Mm. And that's controversial, I know. But I think it's an important part of the delivery of a family lawyer. We have a we have a unique and bespoke system in this country, which we don't have a one size fits all system. We have a bespoke system. And I, I think lawyers should use their bespoke system to, to deliver the best outcome they can for their client. Well, certainly, it seems like it was a huge gap that you've identified. So I'm, I'm really happy that that, you know, it's at least being talked about. And hopefully that other lawyers will be considering it and yeah as I say hopefully with the sort of improved general level of awareness in the public as well that women or partners whatever will will kind of be taking this up themselves and, and hopefully advocating for themselves and I think that's probably that sort of financial element is something that people might not really be thinking about if they're sort of in the throes of a very difficult symptoms or whatever you know, it might be the last thing on their mind when actually the sort of the long-term implications of that are, are obviously quite serious you make such a good point about that Emma because alongside the survey we had an open text box where people could write their comments and just picking up from your point you know some of the comments that came across were very much that the wife, you know, this is one particular wife speaking, that she felt like a wreck and rolled over. She couldn't mm. negotiate the financial settlement. And I'm seeing increase. Well, actually, I don't see it because I'm a lawyer who hopefully represents my clients well. But I hear many stories of women, wives in particular, saying they didn't pursue their financial mm. claims. They just feel too vulnerable and, they too, and they're struggling. Yeah, and isn't that shocking? Because that does passport a lot of financial problems later down the track. So if you haven't negotiated well or you haven't negotiated at all, mm. there is a real blind spot in particular in relation to pensions. So many women think that pensions they have no entitlement to, they feel vulnerable and fragile, don't negotiate and they don't obtain any share of pension. Mm. And that's why we know many, many women suffer financial poverty in retirement. It's a very striking aspect of many women's lives and they become very dependent on state benefits in retirement state pension mm. credit such a shame generally we're, we're you know we're <laughs> in this country we don't like to talk about money and perhaps that's even more uh, shows up even more for women and and yeah so I think it is really really important that we talk about things and I'm, I'm so happy that you spared some time to come and chat to us today about your research we'll pop some links in the show notes if people want to read up uh, a bit more um, and uh, yeah and find you on the website thank you so much for your time Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when the next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.